Hogan, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of the North American Soccer Show here at World Football Index. We're back to full strength this week with the usual crew. I'm your host, Dylan Baker, and joining me today, now I can't officially say as always because it's not true anymore, is Chris Smith. Chris, how are you? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. And Brady Reed from Canada. Brady, how are you? I'm doing really good, and uh, I'm glad to be back this week. We are glad to have you back, and... Uh, before I start considering too much why I had to say Brady Reed from Canada, we're going to push right on to a Canadian soccer team so that we can just jump into some real content here. Uh, the first thing that I wanted to talk about, just kind of in brief review, uh, there was a lot of hype, there was a lot of noise around Toronto FC chasing the unbeaten record uh, in the MLS this week. Uh, I think uh, as of two games ago, they were sitting at 17 and the record was 18, and since then they've lost twice in a row so not only not quite living up to the to the expectation of uh, of 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 such an important record to the MLS but also you know not building off of that disappointment brady can you talk to us a little bit about what has gone on these past couple of weeks at toronto and whether we can assume that a bounce back is coming in their next game yeah i mean obviously to have to have that record would be a great you know a great achievement in itself but I think many around the league probably would have been questioning the legitimacy of that run anyways between the you know so the the regular season going through the tournament format in Orlando and obviously now just just coming against Canadian teams and and to be fair to Montreal and Vancouver not not two of the strongest teams in the league and and with the spanning across two years you know it, it was a bit of a wacky run um I mean nonetheless a great you know something great for the team to kind of look back on and say you know that's that's the end of a streak. Let's start another one. But obviously that hasn't worked that way, you know, the last two games and, and last night certainly was a surprising result, but kudos to Vancouver for, you know, a scoring a goal and B getting a, a very, very much needed result. So I, I don't think this is the sign of things to come for, for Toronto. I think this is a bit of a lull and, and they do have a couple of injuries they're dealing with. So I don't, uh, I don't expect this to be a big issue long term, but uh, certainly with regards to the Canadian Championship, uh, definitely some some small concerns for Greg Vanny. Well, and for the big team there up in Canada as well. And the one thing that you do have to say is that despite the fact that they've lost both of their last two matches, again, it's a it's a two match run, you know, in comparison with the seventeen match run. So it does it does to a certain extent seem like small pennies. And when you couple with that, they didn't look. They didn't look like a team that had run out of ideas in any sense. It, it looked more. It looked to me like you had said more like a blip in 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 what is you know and remains to be a, a pretty impressive MLS team to say the least. No, I mean I think you know I think they were probably the better team last night against Vancouver and at home against Montreal as well. But you know honestly, I would feel guilty to discredit either of the the two teams having found a way to get a result because obviously you know it's annoying having to play the same team over and over again, but. You know, when it's an opponent that's been, you know, significantly more superior in at least recent memory, obviously, you know, you're looking at that fixture schedule and, you know, it's it's it's, it's not exactly ideal. But I think we've seen some growth from from Terry Henry and we've discussed that on this podcast many a time. And I think that was part of it the other night. Obviously, they weren't on the ball a ton, but they certainly found a way to get it done, especially on the road. Um, and yeah, like we said, Vancouver, I mean, they, they went over four games without scoring a goal. So to get three last night. They were they were just opportunistic and 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 that's probably an identity they're going to have to buy into if they want to have success. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, Toronto's probably still the the top team of the three, but for them to kind of even out the playing field, I think that's a good problem to have in Canadian soccer. 
Well, and you 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 are right about how we've talked about the 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 Canadian MLS teams' situation over the over the course of the last several podcasts, and and now we're we're finally seeing it come to fruition. And it is it's not only it's not only interesting from a from a fan standpoint, but it is it's interesting from an analytics standpoint too, because uh, like we've said, when you look at that matchup system from the outset, where you've got Toronto constantly playing Vancouver and Montreal, you would just assume in a very general reasoned sense that you know Toronto is going to wipe the floor with these teams on a on a relatively consistent basis, and it's you know potentially going to hamper Vancouver and Montreal season once once their opponent range is opened up south of the border, and you know uh, we speculated several times that that may very well not be the case with Montreal having a new manager and figuring themselves out and and Vancouver you know doing their best to punch above their weight and that's exactly what we've seen these last couple of games for Vancouver and and Montreal they're 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 probably teams in in transition a lot more than we would say about Toronto they've kind of had very little turnover with regards to roster or, or front office so you know it's always it's always easier to come back with the same group of guys especially when that's a that's a championship group that we have there from from three years ago. So, no, I think um, uh, the Vancouver one to me feels a little bit more like a one off than the Montreal result. I, I, you know, that that might not be the case ultimately, but for me, I think the signs there that Montreal could 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 be a contender to to kind of try to sneak into the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. I'm not sure that Vancouver has that that consistency that we've seen last night moving forward, but. No, I think the uh, the four hundred one derby, or as, as the Canadian Classic, as some like to call it, I think you know it, it's it's kind of going to move into a new chapter, and, and once again, it'll kind of be a, a two way street, which is you know a great problem to have. Like I said, well, in my attempt to 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 drag Brady's favorite team through the mud has has fallen to to reason and sensibility. So thank you for that, Brady. I'm going to try and do the same thing to Chris, albeit I'm sure it's going to come off in the same fashion, Chris. We spent a lot of time on Atlanta United in the MLS's back tournament, and with the departure of Frank DeBoer and the the introduction of Stephen Glass, we were hoping to see a bit of a turnaround just in the dressing room, on the pitch in terms of mentality, maybe not necessarily anything incredibly tactically uh, formulating at this stage, but we were hoping to see something and we got a little bit of that, I think against uh, uh, Nashville uh, earlier on uh, towards the end of August. But since then it's three matches, not necessarily defeated, but three matches, winless, uh, a three, one loss to Orlando city, and then a nil, nil draw to inner Miami. And then a one, one draw to Orlando city um, is not the, is not necessarily the best start for Steven glass. So before we get into the, the other content that we're going to get into for this podcast, which for the listeners out there, this is going to be a little bit more of a headline style podcast rather than covering matches. There's a bunch. There's been a bunch of big stuff that we haven't had the chance to cover between what's happened this week and then doing the Paraguayan podcast with Roberto Rojas last weekend that we really want to get the chance to touch on. So before we get into any, into any of that, Chris, talk to me a little bit about Atlanta United. Where where you see them at under Stephen Glass, and you hopefully in a in a positive light where you see them going. Yeah, as you say, the the early signs seem quite positive against Nashville. Where the you know the, the possession out the back looks a lot better. Eric Rometty was coming in as the lone six and sort of distributing the ball a lot better and filling that hole in midfield that really crippled him in Orlando at MLS's back, but. Since then, as you say, it's been a bit of a downward spiral. Um, the last three performances probably up there among the worst three performances I've seen from from an Atlanta United side in MLS. So 
you know, there's a, a lack of creativity going forward. Uh, they, they rarely look like scoring. The, the first half against Orlando in the one-all draw, I remember noting that they generated 0.09 xG, which is quite pathetically low, to be honest. Uh, the, the game against Miami was a complete bust. And that, like, when you when your club's posting highlights real the next day and there's not one highlight from your own club on it, that that's worrying. Um. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's there's a lot of negatives. Um, defensively, I still think they look a bit disjointed, and sort of Orlando look like they could walk through him at a moment's notice on on both meetings. I'd say the only positive so far was uh, Adam Yarn's last minute equaliser against Orlando the other night, which uh, I know it pleased me at three o'clock in the morning. I'm sure it pleased a lot of Atlanta fans over in the states as well. Well, before we end up on a tangent about what else pleases you at three o'clock in the morning, uh, we're going to move on to one of our primary topics of conversation here, which is the Pity Martinez transfer. Now, we've spoken since the introduction of the North American Soccer Show about what's been done since Miguel Amaron's departure to Newcastle a year and a half ago. And one of the main players for that rebuild to inject that creativity that Atlanta United so desperately need um, was Pity Martinez, a, a highly lauded player from the Argentinian division, even one player of the year one year. I, I mean, this is the this is a big name in in South America, and and he he comes up to North America, and he's had a pretty disappointing uh, last eighteen months with the club, to say the very least. And it looks like, um, as confirmed uh, on on Twitter, like you had uh, mentioned to me pre-show, um, that he's going to be off to Al Nasser in Saudi Arabia. Now, I've got a couple of different things that I want to talk about with this particular topic of conversation, but. Talk to me about Pity Martinez since he's arrived at the club, what you've seen from him. Did you see any of that player of the year talent on display over the course of his last 18 months? And and I guess more importantly, potentially, upon his impending departure, are you are you happy to see him go? Or do you think there there was more left to have from him, provided that he was under the right management? Um, I think <laughs> I think I'd probably speak for all Atlanta United fans when I say we we have seen flashes of that former South American player of the year, that Copa Libertadores winner, uh, but it has definitely been restricted to flashes and, and fits and starts. He had he had one really good run towards the end of the regular season last season. Uh, he scored in the US Open Cup final as well. Uh, barring that, he's not really done anything on a consistent basis. Um I'd say nine goals and 13 assists in 48 MLS games and CCL games combined isn't enough for a, for a player of for basically for the outlay that, that Atlanta put on him. Um, to say that I'm happy that he's going, no. I, I'm never happy to see a transfer like this not work out. Uh, I don't think it's ever been down to Pity Martinez not trying. He's always looked for the ball. He's always tried to make things happen. He's always sort of Barring when Frank DeBoer's annoying him to within an inch of his life, he's always tried his best. So I think he was quite often played in a position that didn't suit him, played a, a, in a role that didn't suit him. He was sort of charged with running the game and, and trying to sort of dictate play, which that's not what Pity Martinez is all about. He, he, he needs to be given that tactical freedom to, to roam, play in a bit of a free role. And basically, I think was, this is in Matt Doyle's words, blow the game open, which... In Stephen Glass's first game, he certainly did that with two goals against Nashville, which makes this transfer a bit more surprising. But 
no, I'm not. I'm not happy to see him go. Um, we all wanted it to work out, and for him to be that armor and replacement that that everyone hoped he'd be. But the the fee that's in place, you know, eighteen million dollars. They make they're making a profit on it, even when they have to give a certain amount of that back to River Plate. So to make a profit on a guy that's been so inconsistent, as Darren Eels said before the Inter Miami game, it was a bit of a no brainer. Well, and it was an interesting purchase, to say the least, because you, one thing that we know is that creativity can come from anywhere on the pitch. And the Atlanta United that saw Joseph Martinez uh, work with Miguel Almiron just behind him, it was a lot of their creativity was central, and a lot of their facilitation for creativity came from wide positions. So when you go and when you go and you get a guy like Pity Martinez, you have to think to yourself with, with that amount of talent. And with the skill set that he has, there needs to be a shift change in mentality of, of who's facilitating creativity and who's actually doing the creating themselves. Uh, you know, Pity Martinez is a winger. And in a lot of matches that we've seen in, in, in his 18-month spell in the United States, he's been, he's been played in that attacking midfield, second striker, you know, deep-lying forward, if we want to go football manager on some of these folks, kinds of positions. And that's just not where his skill set lives. Uh, you know, I, I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, you, you said nine goals and 13 assists in 40-some-odd in, in games. And, and no, you're absolutely right. That's not that's not a return that's, that's acceptable at, at, at this level uh, if you want to be – if you want to try and run your team through – that position but on the same token it's the MLS isn't really known for really high goal scoring wingers so the I mean if you if you take a guy like Nani out of the equation and 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 he's really the the only name that comes to mind for 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 big time wingers that have a lot of output in the MLS it seems it seems strange in the environment that is the MLS to try and transition from a system that worked to a system that we don't historically see work very well in the United States. So considering those things, was the Pity Martinez transfer in the first place potentially a little misguided? Uh, to be honest, I think ending on the word misguided though is perfect because I think yeah, I think the player himself was a bit misguided as well because it was for from everything I remember of the deal. He was signed by Tata Martino and then he leaves shortly after and Frank DeBoer comes in, basically set up in a completely different manner to what Martinez was expecting. So straight away, you get the feeling he's come to the club under a false pretense. Um, You mentioned all the positions he's played in. I think Frank DeBoer even tried him as a false nine for the first couple of MLS's back games just to try and get something happening further up the pitch. But... Honestly, the whole thing's been really disappointing. He, he, he has, yeah, I'm not going to make too many excuses for the guy, but he's, he's not been played in his correct position. Personally, I'd love to see him just out on the left a little bit more, but with that freedom to drift inside and combine and, and sort of get in close to Barco whenever he wanted to and then sort of move out and get his, get his fullback one-on-one whenever he wanted to. But for one reason or other, Frank DeBoer didn't fancy it. Stephen Glass tried it for one game. It worked but a good deal come in, which he seemed really keen on. So that, that's that, I'm afraid. Yeah, Chris, I think you make a, an interesting point just just regarding you know the timing of Martinez coming in and, and the fact that, that the guy who was so keen on bringing him to Atlanta is, uh, abruptly leaves shortly thereafter. And I think that's something we see a lot in football. I mean, you know, with, when we're talking about creative players who are not necessarily going to be a guy who's work rate is going to be through the roof or, you know, on, on any given day, they're, they're just... 
kind of like, uh, you know, players that are trying low percentage plays on a regular basis. So when it's not on, it doesn't necessarily look the the prettiest. So, you know, when a manager that has one, one style wants to bring a guy in and, and certainly believes him. And then all of a sudden he's out the door and, and somebody comes in who's perhaps a little bit more of a defensive minded kind of old school guy, you know, a guy like PD Martinez or, you know, even Miggy Almiron or a player like this might not be somebody that they, that they absolutely want to have in their team. So I, I, I think that that's something like that could have possibly played a, played a role in, in, in kind of his short sighted, uh, his short-sighted switch to Atlanta and, and how it clearly hasn't worked out. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to make too many excuses for the guy. Obviously, the, the expectations weren't met, but I, I would have liked to see a little bit more of him just from the outside looking in. I don't know as much about the player as Chris, but you know, being on the Toronto beat and, and watching a lot of Atlanta, obviously, is two of the kind of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. He was certainly a player who who I watched and thought he had the, the potential to do so, but. You know, when it's when it's a business, how long? I guess you know how long can you wait? And obviously, and an offer came up that they just simply couldn't refuse. And Brady, I'm going to stick with you at least at first for this question. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and pass us off as experts on the Saudi Arabian League. But one one topic of conversation that I do want to ask before you know we start talking about Atlanta moving forward from this transfer is is. Is the proposed move to Al Nasser in in Saudi Arabia, and I'm sure I'm butchering that name. If I am, somebody please send me something on Twitter uh, and inform me of my of my dire error. But what's interesting about this this move is that Saudi Arabia kind of has a, a little bit more of that retirement league kind of mentality that MLS has carried for a long time and is, is doing what I think is a very good job moving away from it. But you know, ultimately they still have a little bit of that, of that label attached to them. Saudi Arabia very much has that label attached to them. Um, and when you look at Al Nasser, they have some names that any, any fans of European football would know, you know, uh, Ahmed Musa is one of their, was one of their number one forwards. They've got Mykon, uh, a center back that's played in uh, a variety of different European leagues uh, at, at the age of 32. And I, I don't think I mentioned it, but Ahmed Musa is 28, so not not super old just yet. But they also have Norton Amrabat. Uh, anybody who's followed Watford in the Premier League has uh, knows knows about him. He's 33, um, and at the oldest, which is you know it always super fun, is Brad Jones, uh, once of Liverpool infamy, at the age of 38. You know, these are some names that we know, but they're not necessarily, you know, uh, they're not on the right side of 30, most of them. And and here's a guy, Argentinian, 27, has had a not so hot 18 months, and he's moving to Saudi Arabia in, in what will be a move that will bring Atlanta United some money, not the amount of money that they paid for him, but though, though it, it will bring them some income that they can use to look into replacements, which I'll, we'll, we'll move on to next. But Brady, after all of this talking, what I'm essentially trying to pitch to you is, is it strange to you to see a 27 year old moving to Saudi Arabia? Because that doesn't seem very much like a career move. And I don't want to be the guy to say that, Oh, he's definitely going for the money or, Oh, he's definitely going for, for one reason or another, because we don't know the different details about the contract negotiations. We don't know the different details about bonuses or, you know, or, or what the prospect of the move to Saudi Arabia is going to offer him. But the, I think the big thing is for me that we don't see a lot of players move to Saudi Arabia and that be the, the restart of their career. You don't go to Saudi Arabia and then make a big move to the Premier League. You don't make go to Saudi Arabia and then find your way back home at River Plate in Argentina. So, you know, for a 27 year old, to me, Brady, this seems like a this seems like an odd career move. What do you think? 
Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, I know that we were talking about this a little bit before we hopped on on the call here. And, you know, I, I thought right away of, of Giovinco's departure from Toronto FC. And obviously he headed to to the same league to suit up for Al-Hilal. But, you know, he was a guy who, A, had had a lot more success at the Major League Soccer level than, than PT had. And, and B, was, you know, some five, six years older. So like we said, at the point in his career, maybe, maybe a financial move and one that probably made sense for him personally. Um, yeah, I haven't seen a ton of the league. I'll be completely honest. I, I certainly, in early days of Giovinco's departure, I, I I caught a couple of the the AFC, the Asian Champions League games, and I think stylistically, you know, the level is probably not as good, but it probably actually suits PT Martinez a little bit. That's it's a very technical game. The players tend to be, you know, not as physical and 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 maybe a little bit better on the ball in some circumstances, but. I think he'll be given an opportunity to, you know, to kind of roam and, and pull the strings and play the way he likes to play. But like you said, I don't, I don't think this necessarily is going to create the profile that, that he would have playing, that he would have playing for a team like Atlanta United fresh off of an MLS cup victory. Um, yeah, it's certainly a strange one. Um, like we said, financially for Atlanta, I don't know if it's a panic move or what the situation is there, but you know, clearly they've seen an opportunity to, to do a little bit better than breaking even and they've taken it. Um, yeah, I, I'm certainly going to keep an eye on, on PT because he's a player that, you know, that I always wanted to see a little bit more from. But, you know, it doesn't feel like one that is a stepping stone and perhaps it's a little bit of a, you know, a step in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think the one thing that I've seen from sort of PT's side of the move is so from all the reporting that I've read, is it very much sounds like something that he was really in favour of, which, as you say, moving to Saudi Arabia... I don't want to disrespect the league because there's, there's clearly a lot of quality there. Uh, there's a lot of quality players there, but as you say, it's probably got that retirement tag more than MLS has had in the past. So, but you think on the one hand, maybe, maybe he's just he just wants to put the whole Atlanta United affair behind him, given that as we as we mentioned before, he perhaps didn't sign the manager he wanted. The whole experience probably hasn't been what he wanted. Perhaps this was just a good way for him to sort of get out, move his family to somewhere new and, and get a nice payday and try something different. But certainly feels strange, but Atlanta have been left with a, a nice big open designated player spot and, and a nice big kitty to spend. So I suppose in, in one sense, you could say at this point, given what's happened, everybody everybody wins really. Well, and to stick with you, Chris, before we move on to some of the other topics that we do want to cover, what's... It's an interesting thing to, to to try and come up with how to figure this question out because the, the, the obvious question is going to be, what's the move forward? What's the way forward for Atlanta? But especially considering Atlanta's situation and considering the dichotomy between what Pity Martinez was supposed to be and what he resulted in uh, – the dichotomy of what Pity Martinez was supposed to be and what he actually ended up being for Atlanta United, it the move forward seems like a much bigger question than you know, who's his replacement or stylistically what changes uh, or, or tactically what changes, these sorts of things. Um, so there may be quite a bit to talk about here, and, and that's perfectly fine, but knowing, like you had said, that there's there's going to be money to spend and there's going to be a designated player spot open for Atlanta United. There's a variety of places that they could go. There's a lot, variety of different tactical sort of situations that they could find themselves in moving forward that would be more beneficial, obviously, than what's been attempted over the course of the last two years. So um, you know, I guess 
I guess for, for, for simple words that everybody knows what they mean, what's the way forward, but a little bit more specifically, do you see this transfer being part of the big shift change from, from what Atlanta United fans have had to undergo over the course of the last 18 months? Yeah, it's a question with a lot of answers. Um, I think the first thing is the change between Tata Martino and, and Frank De Boer in, in the style of football he plays just absolutely huge. So it was a strange move to begin with. And now that he's gone, the, the sort of the big question being put to the front office is, do you have a defined way of playing yourself? And it doesn't matter what manager is going to come in, the, the team are going to keep playing that way. Or are you going to adjust your your lineup and adjust your playing staff to to who's in the dugout. That's that's the first big question because that's ultimately going to define who they sign to to refill this DP spot. In terms of sort of the, the current problems on the pitch, there's probably three big areas where you're really looking at, at where they could fill that spot and and really improve. The obvious one is Pity Martinez is going, so they probably need a creative player to come in and sort of pull the strings create chances and sort of make things happen in the final third like they just haven't been doing recently. Um, especially so, so with uh, Ezekiel Barco's also been linked with a move away recently. So Sevilla are, are, are reportedly tracking in. So if that happens, then even more so that, that creativity is needed. Uh, there's the obvious problem of, you know, Joseph Martinez is still injured. Um, I know Adam Yarn scored the, uh, the equaliser against Orlando, but let's not kid ourselves. He's not the answer. That was uh, his third shot on target in eight games. They've got Kubo Torres there as well. He looks better on the ball in Jan, but again, he's not getting in the box and, and sort of being a big threat. And to be quite honest, even when he does get in the box, the service isn't there. So, And the, the third position really where I think they need the most improvement is a, a number six, a holding midfielder. Um, we've spoken at length about Darlington Nagby on this show and for, for good reason, he's probably the best number six in MLS. Um you know he's he's great at breaking up the opposition play, but more importantly, he's so press resistant. He, he can turn out pressure so easily, and he's really progressive with his passing. You know he breaks lines and he he gets his team forward quickly. Since he's gone, Atlanta just haven't had anyone who could do that on a regular basis. The the closest we've seen so far was, as I mentioned before, Eric Umedi against Nashville, but that's for one game. And since then, they've re- reverted back to type and and recycled the ball at the back. So. Yeah, there's there's three big areas for improvement. Where they're gonna use a DP spot on is anyone's guess. But so, like I said, then the, the first question is: Are they gonna base the decision around the head coach, or are they gonna have an ethos in place that runs through the club? Yeah, and I mean, I think one thing that's that's been lost a little bit in all of this is, you know, whether you think this transfer is you know right or wrong, or the timing is necessarily ideal. I mean. In the context of Major League Soccer, you know the reported fee of eighteen million dollars—that's that—that's quite a sum of money. So, the exciting, the exciting thing is now moving forward is that you know, yeah, the the prospects of bringing in a DP are are certainly you know a positive, and and the limits on on what you can and can't afford are are probably a little bit higher than than some teams are working with just just for the sheer you know the transfers that they've had with with Martinez and Almiron and and you know potentially Barco now moving forward. So. You know, on one hand, obviously they're losing, like you said, some of their their marquee players and obviously some creativity. But you know, you've got to think, like we've said, you know, the, the pedigree for for winning that they've had, and and obviously still the opportunity to play with some great players with Joseph Martinez on the mend and 
in, in a market that's had some success. I, I don't think that they're, you know, it's all doom and gloom. I think there's definitely, you know, the prospect of, of bringing in some pretty exciting names to replace some of these guys. Yeah, I'd agree where they're not on a downward spiral as such. I think more more to the point, they're a bit of, at a bit of a crossroads where they now have a decision to make. And I think this is the point now where it has to be the right decision. The next DP that comes in has to be the one that works. And I think the next managerial appointment has to be the one that sort of gets them back to where they were 18 months, two years ago. So to say that they're a club in crisis or in free fall would be very, very dramatic, especially when there's a, they're playing a league that's got no relegation. But yeah, for sure, I think they're, they're at a, a crossroads and this, these next few decisions and these next few weeks and months are going to be very important. Well, and it'll be interesting, too, to see just how much of that responsibility is going to be placed on on Stephen Glass, because in, a, in his situation, it's in an ideal world before you really sign that next designated player, and especially for such an important position, considering uh, like you had talked about, uh, you know, uh, 10 or 15 minutes ago, Chris, um, you know, especially in terms of their creativity with the their expected goal numbers that they've had over the course of the last three games. You would think that the decision would be made only once the managerial spot has been finalized. And Stephen Glass, I'm sure, is hoping that it's him. But if it's not him, you'd almost need to say, we need to figure this out first. Because if we don't, then we're going to have another Tata Martino situation where Pity Martinez comes in under the pretense of playing under Tata Martino. Under the assumption that he's going to play in a, a Martino-style system and 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 not get that, which you know I think is part of part of the reason why we've seen so many issues out of, out of Atlanta United the last several months. Yeah, well, it, it's strange sort of trying to keep up with what, what the club is saying about it all, really, because you you think that with with how quickly they sort of swung the axe on, on Dubois, you'd think that they had a good idea in mind of who they're going to bring in to replace him. But to be quite honest, from, from all the noise you're hearing from the club, they don't seem in a great rush. They, they seem pretty confident that Stephen Glass can, can steady the ship and guide him through, which I'm sure he can. Um, but it just strikes me as strange they were so quick to get rid of Dubois. And then from, from what I read of Dubois, interview with Felipe Cardenas with The Athletic, it seemed like he was still planning to move forward as well. So, you know, that decision very much came abruptly and out of the blue, but with nothing to back it up. So that's interesting. Um, it seems like the more urgent, from what Darren Eels said pre-game before the Inter-Miami match, it, he made a big assertion that he's not giving up on this season. He still sees success coming this season and that he intends to fill his DP slot. So, yeah, while everyone from the outside looking in will probably go, yeah, get your manager in first. It seems like from the club, they want to get the guy who's going to go out on the pitch and the confident that Stephen Glass can take him forward. Well, and for anybody who's interested in other teams than Atlanta United and Toronto FC, I pinky promise we have other stuff to talk about on this podcast. And that other stuff starts now. So the the one thing that I want to push to you guys that's still MLS related before we start talking about some abroad stuff is... I guess our inability to predict once again, which seems like a, a, a horrifyingly recurring theme on this podcast, we spent a lot of our MLS's back tournament time talking about the systemic issues with LA Galaxy and why that led to their 2019 season uh, resulting the way that it did and their MLS's back tournament disappointment. And, and we talked about the more progressive, modern sort of attitude that LAFC has taken in their time in the MLS and, and, and why that brought them a, a, a 
measurable, a marginal, a reasonable amount of success uh, in the MLS's back tournament and how that's probably going to be able to carry them forward. But since the MLS season has begun once again, we've kind of seen the opposite where LA Galaxy have won all three of their games, including an El Trafico against LAFC. And LAFC have lost two of their three. Um, you know, they very recently beat San Jose 5-1. to one, But otherwise, um, again, as I said, they lost 2-0 to LA Galaxy. And they lost 3-1 to, to Seattle Sounders. Now, Brady, Diego Rossi, for as much as we've talked about him, he still looks like all cylinders are firing. He's still operating at 110%. But LAFC do not look like the team that they were last year at the moment. And LA Galaxy look a much more organized team than what we got the chance to see during the MLS's back tournament. So I want to start with you, especially because potentially this is another, you know, Toronto FC style blip with LAFC. Um, and it's hard to look at that five, one win uh, over the earthquakes and, and say that they're in a bad place right now, but you wouldn't have expected going one and two in their first three games in the MLS regular season, but they just don't look quite up to scratch and LA galaxy are overperforming or, LA Galaxy are not as bad as what we thought they were. So talk to me about this Los Angeles conundrum that, again, we've not been able to predict in the past, but heck, we're going to give it a shot now. Yeah, well, even with the San Jose result, obviously they've scored five goals, but the, the problem is that that, that that might be the only way they're going to be able to win games because I'm not sure that they've got a competent you know, defender or goalkeeper at the moment. I mean, obviously a lot of that comes down to you know tactics and and the system that Bob Bradley and, and LAFC play, it can be pretty free-flowing. And when it's working, it's fantastic to watch. But, yeah, I mean, like you said, it certainly, you know, listen, it doesn't fall on the, on the shoulders of Diego Rossi. He's, he's leading the league in scoring, and he's been a you know a genuine MVP candidate from the, from the get-go. And, you know, we want to talk about guys who could potentially be heading out of MLS soon. I think his name is probably at the very top of that list. But, yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a happy medium. It's you know LAFC or a team that you know notoriously I like and and I always you know kind of fall in the trap of picking them to go all the way or having a ton of success in in the playoffs or in the, in the MLS back tournament and yeah defensively and, and in and in goal they just continue to make you know massive errors that you know just it doesn't matter how good you are going forward when you're picking the ball out of your own net three and four times it's going to be very hard to to have a consistent run of games. Um, and another thing I've seen, another thing I've seen online, I'm not the only person who, who's kind of shared this mentality is, you know, Vela has been in and out, which obviously hasn't helped, but you know, their midfield, the rotation of their midfield and through injury, you know, the absence of Atuesta at times and, and blessing and Mark Anthony K when that midfield three is not all available. This is such a different team for Bob Bradley. I think, I think that midfield three has got to be one of, if not the absolute best in the league when they're all playing, it's just, such a great understanding. And when, when you're taking some of those guys out, I think especially at Tuesta, it has to be said that they're just not the same team. And, and, and they just simply, like you said, you know, for them to, for them to turn it against San Jose and win five to one is obviously a good start, but they've definitely been the dis more disappointing of the two. But yeah, I think LA galaxy, they deserve marks as well, especially the victory over Portland fresh off the, MLS's back tournament, Vic, like the 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 win. That's just you know that's a massive result against a veteran team that that we've seen is obviously one of the one of the league's best. And so, yeah, I think we maybe perhaps we didn't give them enough credit. I'm not sure this is something to get used to. I don't know if they're you know genuine contenders to finish ahead of you know your 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 Seattle's and Portland's and obviously LAFC at the end of the season. But 
you know, it was clearly signs that they can compete if if everybody's on the same page. And I think when you've got a guy like Christian Pavon, you've always got a puncher's chance to win a game. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in that in that upcoming fixture. But there's there's probably a little bit less between the two teams than we thought there was, you know, a month ago. Well, and Chris, it, he he brings up a couple of interesting points there, and 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 one thing that I do want to touch on is that regardless of their of their form at the moment, there are still systemic issues at LA Galaxy. I'm I, I, I'm I'm fairly confident with as with as much feedback as you guys have given, um, and with as much research as we've put into this LA Galaxy problem, I'm I'm confident it still exists. But one of the things that you mentioned a few weeks ago was, you know, when you have a team that has big names like Sasha Kleistan, when that has uh, Christian Pavon, that has Sebastian Yetget, you you assume that a team should be performing well with those players. And it just seems like it's not been put all together at the moment. And, you know, mentioning those names yet get has two goals in the last three games. Uh, Christian Pavon has two goals in the last three games. And these are the, you're finally starting to see some of these players that they've brought in, especially since Alley galaxy has always been that team that searches for the big name, whether it be, you know, a, a homegrown player or, or a foreign player, where you're finally starting to see that output. And I think that that's been a very important part of their success in this, you know, the, the, the early throws, the MLS regular season. So talk to me a little bit about the expected performances from some of these big name players, as well as one of the things that we talked about pre podcast uh, is the, the first goal for uh, Ephraim Alvarez, uh, a player that was hyped up by Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, right before he departed. And, you know, a, a player that we've all been excited to see just hasn't necessarily gotten his chance on a consistent basis. It looks like this season may be r- truly his debutante season. And, you know, against Portland, a team that w- we've spoken so much about being defensively organized and, and, and having uh, players like a Diego Shara in there that 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 are they're so crucial to how how Portland play. Um, and, and you've got a guy like Alvarez who, who, who gets his uh, first MLS goal to his name. So, um, a couple of different things to throw at you there. Um, so I'm just going to let you run with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the, uh, Efren Alvarez goal first. I, I think he's, he's a guy I've wanted to sort of bring to this podcast for quite a while. It's just been a case of, he's not been playing enough for me to mention his name. Um, he's a guy I've wrote about quite a lot for, for world football index. He's, he's a real talent. Um, when you got, Zlatan Ibrahimovic saying he's the best youngster in MLS, then that means something because uh, I think Ibrahimovic has come across his fair share of talent across his career. Well, and not only that, but think about all this other talent that we've spoken about, and we've not yet gotten to Alvarez. So, you know, to get to get a guy like Ibrahimovic to come and talk about Alvarez and speak of him that highly, coupled with the fact that we've got all of this talent around him around the league that have outshined his star only because they've been, they've been allowed the ability to shine. And now all of a sudden we get the chance to see him and, and goodness gracious, does he look good? Yeah. Well, the, the impressive thing about the goal is he pretty much showed everything that, that he's got in, in the space of a few seconds. You know, he, he took the ball under pressure with absolute calm as if he was on the pitch on his own, uh, which, which was first for a teenager is wonderful to see. It's great to see. And then to pick out the finish as well, it was so impressive. He, he's displayed his, his calm, he's displayed his technique and his eye for goal all, all in one go. Um, not to mention the the assists we saw for, for Ibrahimovic last season when he when he first started coming through as well. So 
to see him finally getting his chance and definitely grabbing it, not just taking it, but really grabbing hold of that chance. Um, yeah, it's great to see. For the Galaxy as a whole, um, it's amazing what happens when you keep the ball on the floor and pass it. That's the biggest compliment I can pay to, to their recent turnaround. Um, we spoke at length about their tendency to just pump balls into the box and, and hope for the best as if there's some spectre of Ibrahimovic going to come and fly in and score a goal for him. Um, the, the difference since they get went out of that tournament has been, it's been well, it's been great to watch. Really, it's been, it's been dramatic and it's been great to watch. Um, Sebastian Legette now looks like the playmaker we all know he is. He's, he's getting the ball. He's making things happen. He's starting to connect more with, with Christian Pavon, which is, I, I think, what everyone at LA Galaxy wants is them two getting close to each other. You've still got Pavon there just being the game winner. Sort of one minute he's lining up from the wing, the next minute he's driving through the middle, he's got that free roll and he, he just he just finds goals, he, he finds assists and he just makes it happen. Um, one thing I did want to touch on, not so much the fact that he's, he's played a great deal because he's only been coming off the bench, but don't underestimate the effect that Jonathan DeSantos coming back for, from injury has on this team as well, purely just for the fact of having him around on the training ground, having him in the dressing room. He's a huge leader for that team. Um, and on his day, I know I mentioned Darlington Nagby being the best number six in the league, but as a six slash eight, Jonathan DeSantos, he's definitely up. He's, he's an absolutely fantastic player. So to have his presence in the team again clearly brings a lot of calm onto the training ground, a lot of calm into the dressing room, and it, it's translating on the pitch. So, yeah, it's... It's been a hell of a turnaround and a complete style shift, which I didn't know if Shalotto had it in him, but, you know, fair play to him. I'll hold my hands up when I was wrong about him. Well, and for respect of time, there were there were a few different directions that we wanted to go with the rest of this this particular episode, and um, w- one of the directions that we did want to go uh, w- was with Reggie Cannon, um, but with, with him not having his move fully completed yet we're gonna we're gonna give him a little bit of space and and see if potentially we can talk about him next weekend one one player that we do want to discuss that has had his move completed is the the loan move with the eventual purchase of weston mckinney to juventus uh brady i'm gonna i'm gonna come to you here first there's there's a lot of things to talk about with this individual transfer but one of the things that we do have to say is that there's been a lot of talk around Weston McKinney this season. He's been one of the few players, especially after Schalke's collapse and after the after the restart, and, and really in in 2020, if you want to stretch back pre pre coronavirus. But he's been one of the few shining lights in that Schalke side, and and with Juventus not limping to their eighth consecutive Serie A title, but they did make it a little bit hard on themselves. A refresh on the style, especially after the appointment of Andrea Pirlo, seems to point to bringing in some of these talents, uh, whether it be North American or otherwise, that that allow Pirlo to potentially create the kind of midfield that he had played in when he was at Juventus. Now, I'm not going to say that West McKinney is anywhere near uh, Pirlo's level <laughs> 
even considering the other defensive midfielders that they have in that side, like your Sammy Kadiras, and like with your Arturs that that just transferred in from Barcelona, you wouldn't necessarily say that Weston McKinney fits into this team perfectly or is an immediate starter or anything along those lines. But when you look at who Juventus have on their on 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 their wage bill, Artur, Rodrigo Bentenker, Adrian Rabio, Aaron Ramsey, who does admittedly look like he's on his way out, uh, and Sammy Kadira, who's 33 at this stage, you can look at a signing like Weston McKinney and say, here's a guy that may very well be able to build his way into this side um, and into a team that, I mean, is one of the big name soccer clubs across the world. So Brady, I guess in a roundabouts way, what I'm trying to get to is, is that what do you expect from this Weston McKinney signing for Juventus, uh, really from their perspective, how important is a transfer like this to his progression? And and realistically, you know, how, how do you see him fitting into this team over the course of the next two to three years, uh, which you, you should reasonably be, reasonably be able to expect that he'll have at this club? Yeah, I mean, first American player to ever play for for Juventus. And as you mentioned, easily one of the biggest clubs in the world. Um yeah, this was one that caught me by surprise, but in a good way. I mean, I was certainly, uh, I was certainly very excited for him and, and and for North American soccer in general. I mean, to have a guy like him at Juve and Pulisic at Chelsea and Alfonso Davies at Bayern Munich. I mean, what a what an era of young players! All these guys, you know, you know, twenty, twenty one, twenty two years of age. I think it's a it's an unbelievable kind of generation of talent we have here. Um, the biggest thing for me is what I've seen of McKenney with with the American national team and obviously with Schalke, the Bundesliga was kind of front and center of the, of the footballing world when they came back um, a couple months ago. Um, I'm not exactly sure where his best position is to be quite honest. I think he's, he certainly covers the ground. He's a very, you know, he's a very athletic and a very mobile player. I kind of would describe him as a number eight. He's not necessarily a true holding midfielder and, and definitely not a 10, but, yeah, I think the move to Juventus is, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was when we discussed our, our Jonathan David transfer saga uh, last month and, you know, how he chose to go to Lille rather than making the big jump to a United or a, a Bayern Munich. And, you know, was that the smart move? Probably. So I wonder for McKinney, I, I certainly hope this works out. I think this is definitely a gamble and, and shows the confidence that he has in himself and obviously the people around him have in him. But I hope this doesn't stunt his growth because he, he certainly looked to be a player that, that was on the up and coming for, for the U.S. And like you said, was, was probably one of the lone bright spots for Schalke and a bit of a miserable finish to the year. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's 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 quite a number of midfielders that Juve have to to their ability, but a lot of those guys, they, they definitely can't cover the ground that, that McKinney can. And so I think... He certainly got an opportunity here. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to jinx the guy and predict that he's a he's a starter alongside Cristiano Ronaldo from day one. But I'm certainly excited. I think he's got a genuine opportunity here. And yeah, I think for for American soccer and, and North American soccer in general, it's just just alongside some of these other names, it's just a fantastic opportunity to see some guys play for for some of the genuinely the biggest clubs in the world. Yeah, well, I think the the big thing about the McKenney one is it's not like we're like as you mentioned, this isn't his first European club that he's played for. It's it's not like everyone stateside is sort of waving him off at the airport and and hoping he does well. He's he's been playing for Schalke for a few years and in one of the best leagues in the world. And to be quite honest, as as Brady mentioned, he was Schalke's best player when when the Bundesliga returned. Uh, they were absolutely dire, but he stood out and he was he was fantastic. 
he was a goal threat. He was he was he was strong defensively, good with the ball. So I think he, he comes into that Juventus side. Just does he start straight away? Uh, not every game, no. But I think in rotation, I think he's going to get plenty of minutes. And to be honest, I think he ticks a big box that was was really missing. I don't want to pin the guy down on one attribute, but he offers a lot more mobility than than any of the midfielders that Juventus had last year and under Sarri, which ultimately was was one of the things that that really killed them in the Champions League and almost to an extent made them lose Serie A. So he offers a lot that that Juventus need. So in that in that respect, I think he will get the minutes. Um, it's interesting that he's ended up there because I think you know as someone who's got a particular interest, obviously in MLS and in North American soccer, I've been keeping my eye on this this sort of transfer saga unfolding. And you know, one minute it's it's Newcastle that are after him. The next minute, Everton and Liverpool are after him. Before this deal, you know, Southampton were maybe looking at bringing him in as the Hoybier replacement. But he's ended up at Juventus. He's always said that his dream was to play in the Premier League, but he's gone to Juventus. So he obviously fancies his chances of getting into that team. You know, you, you look at what they've got, and I think Adrian Rabiot, personally, I think he's overhyped. I think, I think he could take his spot. Artur's coming in as a new player, so he's going head to head with him. So he's got it all set up. He's got European experience, and at this point, I think I think every sort of US fan is just hoping and praying he does get those minutes, given how much is being pinned on him alongside Christian Pulisic. Well, to make a little bit of a shift here uh, towards the last little segment of our podcast, I, I do want to I do want to shine some light on the Canadian Premier League and and one of the one of the teams that I didn't realize that we were going to be talking about until, you know, it was decided that we were going to be talking about them uh, is HFX Wanderers uh, in the CPL. Now, there are some bigger name teams in the CPL, um, you know, that, that have made the headlines here recently, your Cavalry FCs. You've got teams like Forge based out of Hamilton that have that have really sort of taken the limelight here in the very beginnings of the, of the CPL this season. Um, but Wanderers have showcased their intent to breed Canadian talent, which is really what we've talked about over the last several uh, podcast episodes, um, is, is the CPL being a breeding ground for, for Canadian soccer talent. And Wanderers have showcased that intent by having a squad that's largely built with players that have come from the Canadian university system. Now, Brady obviously being, you know, one of the one of the bigger experts on this podcast with the CPL and being based in that country, talk to me a little bit about the university system as a breeding ground itself and and how and why that's that's a positive transition going from, you know, the, uh, a Canadian university to Wanderers. Yeah, I mean, obviously the league is, you know, it's in it's in early days. It's only its second season. Um, yeah, the the development of the of the CPL U Sports draft uh, has been immense. I mean, like we said, the Halifax of, of any team in the league has kind of taken advantage of that more so than than their competitors. I mean, they've got five or six guys who are regularly starting and and, and getting mean, meaningful minutes under Stephen Hart that have come directly from Canadian University and. You know, this was a topic I actually spoke with with Dom Zator of Cavalry about, and you know, and he he mentioned to me when when he when he graduated from from the University of Calgary, there was no Canadian Premier League to kind of jump into, and from there the grind of you know the USL and and some of the development leads across North America that are not necessarily the most glamorous, obviously brought them full circle back to Cavalry, but 
like you said, for guys coming out of school now, the the transition is just that much smoother, and there's no kind of guessing where you're going to be next year. You know, you you know, you put the work in in university, and and you and you put your name in the draft, and and you could be playing professionally the next year. And so, I think this is exactly what put, what putting a professional league in Canada is all about. You want to you want to give an opportunity for players in your own country, and you know, guys who are you know perhaps going to school in your country from. Or maybe Chris's neck of the woods. There's certainly a ton of ton of English guys that are, have had some success in U sports as well. So, yeah, to give these guys an opportunity to stick around and play professionally, and you know, rather than be you know gambling and you know playing and playing in places that are unfamiliar to them, to to be able to play in their in their own neck of the woods and to be able to have success right away as well is super important. And and I think Wanderers have kind of become the model for. For, for picking players from Canadian University and, you know, perhaps historically the league hasn't gotten a lot of recognition for its talent, but, you know, as a guy who's, who's watched a ton of it live here, here in Newfoundland and, and in Toronto as well, there's, there's, there's plenty of players that have, have got a serious amount of ability. And I think Stephen Hart and Halifax has identified that perhaps better than anybody so far. Yeah. I mean, luckily for me, I've, thanks to your one soccer subscription, Brady, I've been able to watch a bit of it myself and, um, I was, I was speaking to Marcus Haber as well, from, also from Cavalry recently for a, for a piece for WFI, and sort of he's a player at the opposite end of his career who's sort of come back and reignited his career in in CPL, and he he said he, he's he's felt reborn at Cavalry, and you know that this is a place where he felt like he could get his career back on track, but he did also touch on on younger players coming through and mentioned you know during his time as a young player in Vancouver and, and the surrounding area. If you didn't get in with the Whitecaps, then you had to go to Europe because there was there was just a lack of a professional setup. Whereas, you know, you, you see now with Alfonso Davis doing what he's doing at Bayern Munich, Jonathan David making ways, even a CPL success story in Tristan Borges going to Belgium. Um, you know, the, these players are getting opportunities in Europe now and it's only going to help the national team. But you wonder how many of these have slipped through the net before just purely on the fact that there was nowhere for him to play if they, if they didn't get into one of the sort of big academies at, say, Vancouver or Toronto or places like that. So it's really important to, to stop this talent falling through and maybe either move into a different sport or just giving up on it altogether or staying in the college system. So, yeah, if it, you know, so far from what I've watched, a lot of teams like to play on the floor as well. So I think you're going to breed a good generation of players. And, yeah, I think two almost two seasons in, it's got to be seen as a massive positive. Well, not only as a massive positive, but especially stylistically, one of the things that, you know, we've not necessarily talked about on this podcast, but uh, one of the things that I've, I've, I've looked into over the course of, of my, you know, soccer fandom or career or whatever it is that you want to call it as a podcast host, when you have a streamlining of development, whenever it comes to, you know, youth players all the way up through, uh, you know, whenever they're able to join the academy uh, and then into the the youth divisions like the U18s and the U23s and then into the first team, when you have a streamlining of that development, you tend to find that there are a lot more positives than negatives. You know, you, you, you take a country like Germany, for instance, and, you know, a lot of what they've been able to put out and what what they've been able to what they've been able to revamp since uh, in 1998, since 2000, uh, whenever they decided to go through their big revamp, which has been covered by Jonathan Harding and Raphael Honigstein and, and, and so many different uh, individuals that are way better at writing than I am, you're, you're able to see what the benefits of that are. And it looks like 
the CPL are in the beginning throes of of becoming that league potentially on a lesser scale. The, the CPL, I don't think anytime soon is going to be the Bundesliga, but if they can implement that sort of streamlining of development uh, and and trying to figure out what the what the style and what the 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 game plan and what the the the, the future planning of the CP of the Canadian men's national team is going to be, then. At the end of the day, they're going to be uh, they're going to be much better off for it. So, Brady, are you? Is this an example of that streamlining of of Canadian soccer talent? And and if so, do you see it as largely a positive based on what you've seen out of Halifax Wanderers, or are you seeing more? You know, obviously, Cavalry and Forge are are, are much higher in the league table. Do you see that sort of that sort of development system? bringing in some older players like a Marcus Haber being beneficial. I mean, obviously there's the MLS example of bringing in, um, you know, older talent that are a a little bit past their best. That's not necessarily been seen as the most effective for young American players, but um, you know, obviously a guy like Marcus Haber with the career that he's had brings some attention to the CPL. So is it, is it a mixture of the two that you see being effective for the Canadian premier league in the next say five years? Or do you think that the, the, the system implemented by Halifax Wanderers is, is more of the way forward? Yeah. What's the, the famous quote uh, about Sir Alex Ferguson's old teams, you know, you can't win anything with kids. And obviously that's been debunked a few times. So no, I mean, I think that's one of the beauties of the Canadian premier league. I think the opportunity for a guy like Hebert to, to come home and, and find a find a fit that makes sense for him and, and give him an opportunity to once again find his legs. That's that's part of the story. And I mean obviously like we touched about, you know, for, for young Canadians to be able to play in their own domestic league, make that jump to, you know, Belgium like Tristan Borges has, or, you know, Joel Waterman with Cavalry making the jump to Montreal impact. I mean, th- those those opportunities don't exist if it's not for the Canadian Premier League. And I think that's exactly why the league is around. And even for some of the guys who've earned a national team call up, you know, exactly, exactly, you know, last summer to be, you know, a few months into the, into the, into the inaugural season and beginning an opportunity to play for your national team. That's, that probably is not going to happen. Otherwise, I mean, if, if you want to look for a success story, look no further than that. I mean, you know, in year one to be having guys make that jump and, you know, and play for John Herbin's group. I think that's exactly what, what we're trying to accomplish here. So, Obviously, you know, things kind of got thrown for a bit of a loop with uh, with the coronavirus pandemic and, and having to go to go to kind of the tournament bubble route. It's not exactly what we've seen last year, but I, I think they've done a good job adapting. And yeah, I, I think they've made significant strides in, in the short period that we've seen. But I, I, I don't think anytime soon we're going to see any kind of stunting growth for this league. And, and I'm certainly excited for the future. And, you know, if we've got people in the UK and and people in the U.S. paying attention, I think, you know, we can call that mission accomplished. Awesome. Well, this is where we're going to wrap up episode eight of the North American Soccer Show. Uh, just before we go, I do want to give a quick shout out to our Patreon. A World Football Index prides itself on bringing you our content absolutely free and for being ad-free throughout that process. We'll continue to do so in the future to provide the best user experience for our readers and our listeners. If you like what we're doing, though, and you want to help us keep bringing you that content, feel free to join us as a patron on Patreon. You can contribute $3 a month and feel 
warm and cozy knowing that you're a major part of World Football Index, which you really are. Uh, but at $6 a month, you can gain access to our special Colombian Spotlight series that goes in-depth with Simon Edwards from inside the country, as well as at least two extra episodes a month from WFI and a football city guide that covers the culture and environment of a South American city and just how intertwined football is with it. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash world football index. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash world football index to find out more. I've been your host, Dylan Baker, on this episode eight of the North American Soccer Show. You can find me on Twitter at D-L-N underscore B-K-R. Brady, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter and what can we expect for the upcoming week? As always, uh, yeah, I'll be on I'll be on Twitter at Brady Reed underscore and you know, we touched on the Canadian Premier League. They're going to start the second round on Wednesday with the top four teams advancing. So I'll certainly have an eye on that. And then also, you know, TFC will get another opportunity to avenge their loss in Montreal on Wednesday as well. So it should be a, a busy midweek affair. And if that's something that interests you, then keep an eye on the social. And Chris, where can we find you on Twitter? And despite knowing that you're going to output a whole bunch of stuff, what can we expect from you for the upcoming week? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at CJSmith91. Uh, I've just had an interview with Joseph Martinez, his youth coach back in Venezuela, Simon Lozano, come out, which you can check out on World Football Index. A bit of shameless self-plug in there. For the rest of the week, we've got a bit of work on for Squawker. I'll be, I've got, got a couple of bits for Dirty South Soccer that are more based on Atlanta United. And then at the end of the week, I'm going for a nice holiday camping in Yorkshire. So sounds like a fun week. This has been the episode eight of the North American Soccer Show, and we will see you next week.